And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. How many have ever received an email? This was, I don't know, probably 10 years ago this was a thing where a, a, a Saudi prince or somebody with a lot of money had, had put uh, you know, some money in an account that you could have access to if you would give them you know, several hundred dollars to do the paperwork. And of course, we know that that's a scheme. Uh, how many of you have ever have, have you, how many of you have ever bought something on Facebook uh, and gotten taken? I have, and it was too good to be true. But I took a chance, and sure enough, it was too good to be true. There, there's a, a lot of, of that. Uh, the truth is, there are a lot of things out there that seem too good to be true. And the truth is, uh, yeah, you're right. It's not true. Uh, whether to protect ourselves from you know, some disappointment or because it happens so rarely, we are prone to disbelieve really good news. Well, even so, the disciples were all prone to doubt the reports that Jesus was risen from the dead. First, the women came telling them that the tomb was empty and they had seen the risen Lord. They'd seen Jesus. And what did the disciples say? Nonsense. Y'all aren't, aren't thinking clearly. But Peter and John, you know, they said, well, let's go check it out. So they run down and Peter finds a tomb empty. And Luke tells us that this, at this point he's marveling, but he, he's not, you know, he's not fully believing. Then the Lord appeared to these two men that we looked like last week on the road to Emmaus. And of course, he, they figure out, oh yeah, it's Jesus. And he disappears. And so they go right back to Jerusalem. And it was late on that first Sunday. It was probably in the evening. They burst into the room where all the disciples were. And they excitedly tell them about what they had encountered with the Lord. But Mark in chapter 16 tells us, but at first the apostles didn't believe them. They probably thought, yeah, no, well, why would the Lord appear to them? They're not even apostles. They must have just seen a vision. Well, sometime during that day, uh, Jesus had appeared to Peter himself, but the others still had not seen him, and they were all doubting. And then, while, while they are still discussing all of these kind of strange happenings that day, the Lord himself stood in their midst. He hadn't even opened the door. Can you imagine the chill that would run down your spine where you're in a closed room and the door doesn't open and somebody just appears? I had that happen to me this morning in a way. Let me explain. I was sitting over at the piano. This was early this morning, probably about 7.45 or something. I was at the piano and um, Corey and Josh were back in the sound booth and Corey had figured something out and he wanted to tell me about it. And it has to do with what we call the talkback mic, so he can talk to us. Well, before, you could only do it through the big speakers. He found out a way to do it just through our individual monitors. So he turns on, I have my monitor on, so he cues my monitor in and he goes, Hey, Dave, well, I'm sitting at the piano and they're back there. And we're the only ones in the whole building. And all of a sudden, a voice comes from over here. And I, I mean, it literally shook me. And I was like... Hey, yay, yay. I mean, it, it, it literally just sent a chill through me. Well, that's kind of what, you know, the, the apostles went through right at that uh, moment. They thought that they were seeing a ghost. Of course, it wasn't a ghost. It was the risen Lord Jesus. Now, he greeted them with words of comfort. He, he gently rebuked their doubts, and he offered them assurances, as we'll take a look at in a minute, to kind of strengthen their faith. But even so, it says they still could not believe, believe it, that Jesus was there for joy. Now, how many of you ever thought of joy hindering your faith? But it, it can, it does. 
It seemed too good to be true. But it was true, and, and they needed to believe it. And that's exactly why Jesus appeared, so that they would finally believe it. Now, this first resurrection appearance of Christ to the whole group of disciples, minus Thomas, of course, we know he wasn't there at that first one, it teaches us that though we are prone to unbelief, and though Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf seem too good to be true, it is true, and we must believe it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come this morning just as your children to look into your word, pray that you would speak that truth into our hearts as we consider the resurrection and what that means for us today. The same proofs that Jesus gave to those apostles some 2,000 years ago. Uh, Father, that is proof for us today to understand that, yes, that you are risen from the dead, you are alive and well. Other scriptures tell us that you are seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us at this very moment. So we thank you so much for that. Just do a work in our hearts so that when we leave out of here today, we'll look more like your son Jesus. That's in his precious name and I pray. Amen. Well, three major points here. Number one, our fallen nature makes us all prone to unbelief concerning the things of God. One of the strongest proofs of the resurrection is the fact that the disciples were so prone not to believe it at first. If they had immediately jumped to the conclusion that Jesus was risen, then we could think that their testimony to the resurrection was just, call it, wish fulfillment. They wanted it so badly that they convinced themselves it was true, apart from any solid evidence. But the gospel narratives clearly show just how all of the disciples were slow to believe that Jesus was really risen from the dead. Now, they weren't gullible men prone to superstitious ideas who were easily persuaded to believe. Uh, even though just before Jesus appeared, they were saying, the Lord is really risen, when He's there in their midst and they see Him, uh, they don't immediately include, oh, He's risen. No, they go, oh, it's a ghost. And when the Lord confronts them regarding their doubts, they still could not believe it for joy. They were prone not to to believe. Well, so are we. Now, some may be more gullible by nature than others, and, and gullibility is not saving faith. A gullible person easy believes some, easily believes something without much factual data. Just because so-and-so said so, okay, it must be true. That's a gullible person. But a person with saving faith believes on the basis of credible, credible evidence, and Jesus is going to give us some incredible Credible evidence here in just a few minutes. But no one, none of us, no one has ever been prone to saving faith. Saving faith does not originate in the fallen human heart. It comes from God, and it's simply His gift. But even as believers, two things can really get us into trouble with regard to faith. Number one, or A, our fallen thoughts and reasoning make us prone to unbelief. If we had perfect minds, maybe this wouldn't be the case, but we don't. Jesus asked the disciples, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Now, I can understand why they were troubled. It'd be quite startling to have someone appear instantly in a room without even walking through the door. Jesus, however, is trying to calm their hearts so that they can think more clearly. But they weren't just troubled, they were also doubting. Now, the Greek word for doubts here refers to inward reasoning and disputing. Something is going on inside of them, inside of them that's causing them to doubt. 
Well, because of our fallen nature, we're all prone to doubt the things of God, the, the things revealed to us in His Word. Now, God doesn't expect us to blindly believe without making, uh, thinking matters through. He gave us the capacity to reason, to think, and He expects, expects us to use our minds. There's an old saying, you know, just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you check your brain at the door. No, Christianity is actually a thinking man's religion. Well, we all need to be careful. Because of our sinfulness, because of our fallen nature, we cannot go to excess and demand unreasonable proof for that which God has already made plain. To continue raising objections and disputing about matters that God has made reasonably clear is to yield to your fallen nature and not to rise above it. It's not but living by faith. John Calvin, he gives kind of a good balance here. He says, We have a right, indeed, when any appearance of absurdity presents itself, to inquire by weighing the arguments on both sides. And, indeed, so long as matters are doubtful, our minds may inevitably be driven about in every direction. But we must observe sobriety and moderation, lest the flesh exalt itself more highly than it ought and throw out its thoughts far and wide against heaven. And that happens all the time. That's the end of the quote there. But that happens all the time, where people who are trying to um, uh, discredit Christianity want to know every little detail uh, about things in the Bible when God doesn't give us those details. Now, what Calvin is talking about here is, is when we see something in Scripture Sometimes God doesn't give us all the answers. He just says, this is the way it is. And we take it by faith. He, wasn't, he doesn't want us to know the answers. In, in, in Revelation, John is standing there and he sees and he hears these voices. It sounds like the voice of God coming from the waters. And he starts to write it down. And God says, no, don't write that down. That is for the end times. Well, dog on. That could have been the, 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 the mystery of everything, those words, but he didn't want us to have them, so John didn't write them down. There's things in Scripture that are hard to understand, and God doesn't give us every little detail. At some point, we have to, as I talked about last week, walk, live by faith. Here's an example. If you wrestle with the doctrine of predestination, especially as Paul presents it there in Romans chapter 9, um, you may think, well, it's not fair that God predetermines who will believe, and yet he holds us responsible for unbelief. But that's precisely where Paul takes his argument. Paul says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? And, and he says, for who resists his will? And you may think, yeah, Paul, answer that question for me. Why don't you? Well, he does answer, but it may seem like a, a, a cop-out to you. He says, on the contrary, O man, who are you to answer back to God? Now, you could go round and round with your, da with your doubts. It's kind of like a cat chasing its tail. You ever seen that? It's kind of funny. But the questions that you are asking, they only reflect your ignorance, the fact that you don't understand, and your impotence towards God in demanding that He tell you how this all works. 
Truth is, you need to lay aside your reasonings and submit to gain God's plain revelation in Romans 9.18. There he says that God sovereignly has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. And you're not permitted to question his right to do as he pleases. After all, he is the creator, not us. Now, whenever doubts try to creep back in, we've got to control our thoughts by believing and submitting to the clear revelation of God's word. Now, you are responsible to control your thought life. God knows your every thought, and you've got to seek His glory in even your thoughts. Now, if you allow your thought life to just run rampant, you're going to be troubled and battered about by all sorts of doubts. Sound biblical thoughts will result in biblical behavior and in biblical emotions. Unbiblical thoughts in line with your fallen nature that question God, they're going to result in sinful behavior and troubled emotions. That brings us to our second thing here. Our fallen and fluctuating emotions make us prone to unbelief. The disciples at this point were emotionally all over the map. Just before Jesus appeared, they were excitedly saying, the Lord really has risen and has appeared to Simon. Yippee! But then Jesus appears... And they're frightened, troubled, and doubting. When they saw Jesus' hands and feet, they were joyous, and yet their joy hindered their faith. So they're on an emotional roller coaster. Many Christians live that way. Uh, in talking to people, I'll often hear something, you know, they'll say something like, well, I, I used to feel, uh, you know, that God was right there with me and what have you, but I don't feel that way anymore. In other words, they're living by their feelings and not by faith. Good feelings are wonderful. And I think God wants us to have good feelings. But the foundation of our faith is not in our feelings, but in the facts of God's Word concerning His Son. Our feelings, you know, most of you in here I think would agree with this, our feelings, they're going to invariably fluctuate. No one knows by one day you feel great and the next day you don't. We don't. <laughs> but you can't allow yourself to live by your feelings. Christians must live by faith in the facts of God's unchanging word. Joy is normally good. But here with the uh, disciples, we see that it actually hinders their faith. And so in that regard, it is not good. The bottom line is no matter how we feel, we must trust in God. So we have to be careful because our fallen nature makes us, like the disciples, prone to unbelief regarding the things of God. Well, the second major point is the fact that the gospel seems too good to be true makes us prone to unbelief. It's simply too good to be true. The disciples couldn't believe that Jesus was risen because it seemed too good to be true. Now, not just the resurrection, but the entire gospel has the potential to hit us that way. Christ died for all my sins and I can't do anything to merit, merit it. All I can do is receive it by faith. What's the catch? It just sounds too good to be true. But it is true, and we must believe it. Every religion invented by man teaches that the way of salvation depends on human effort and good works. If you work hard enough and do enough good deeds, you will earn salvation or eternal happiness. But the, the true way of salvation revealed in God's Word is that God sent His Son to die to pay the price for the sins of, listen to this, the ungodly. 
How many in here know that you're ungodly? I mean, we're in Christ, yes, but still we sin. Here's what Paul says. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He doesn't grant salvation to those who merit it. Reason number one, nobody merits it. <laughs> he grants it to those who realize that they do not and cannot merit it. Here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verses 4 or 5. He's kind of addressing this issue and he says, Now to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but, favor, but as what is due. In other words, when you work, you're owed something. We call that a wage, right? Then he continues, But to the one who does not work. All right, so no work. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Abraham, back in Genesis 15, um, God comes to him and, and renews his promises and said, your, you know, your, 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 your children are going to cover the earth or whatever. And he says, how can this be? I have no heir except Eliezer of Damascus. That was his head servant. Sarah had not had, yet had any children. And he said, how can that be? I don't even have a child. And at this point, Abraham is 75 years old, Sarah's 65. And God says, go outside. So he goes outside. He says, count the stars if you can. He says, so shall your descendants be. Verse 6 is one of the key verse Paul draws on it in the book of Galatians. In, in verse 6, um, it says that Abraham believed God and he credited it to him as righteousness. Do you get that? That's the, whole, that's the gospel right there. Abraham believed God, and God credited it to him as righteousness. All he did was believe. That's all we do with the gospel. Believe it, and we'll be saved. Think about the thief on the cross. Jesus granted him salvation instantly and totally, apart from anything that he could do in the future because he was fixing to die, and in spite of all the bad things he'd done in his life prior to that time, simply because the thief asked him to remember him when he came into his kingdom. Now, that just runs absolutely counter to the human way of thinking, doesn't it? Surely we have to pay a little bit for our sins. No, Jesus paid it all. He picked up the whole tab. You can't even pick up the tip. Well, surely we have to make promises to do better in the future. No, actually salvation, Christianity, is based on God's promises, not on your promises. Surely there's a catch in it somewhere. The fine print probably says that I have to go to the mission field or join a monastery. No, God offers total, instant an eternal pardon to every sinner who will repent and trust in Jesus as his sin bearer. When you explain the gospel to someone who's not familiar with it and you ask, what do you think? Oftentimes they'll say, that sounds too simple. It sounds too good to be true. They're prone to not believe because everything in life seems to have a catch. The news that Christ died for their sin that He was raised from the dead, that He offers eternal life as a free gift, it just sounds too good to believe. It's too good to be true. But, number three, our risen Lord wants us not to be unbelieving, but believing fully in His death and resurrection on our behalf. 
all of the men in the room uh, there had believed in Jesus as Savior, and, and yet they were struggling with unbelief regarding the resurrection. And this shows us that believers must fight against unbelief to seek to come to a full assurance of faith. Our Lord's dealing with them shows us how gently He works with us to, to lead us to the place of full assurance. Now, here He does three things for the disciples, and they all apply to us. A, to lead us to an assurance of faith, the risen Lord extends His peace in spite of our failures. Now, Jesus appears in His opening phrase, peace to you. That was the common Jewish greeting. But in these circumstances, I think it meant more than, hey, fellas, what's up? I think He was extending peace. Jesus easily could have been angry with these men for, for deserting Him in His hour of need. He could have really laid into them because of their doubts. And while He rebukes them for their doubts, His tone is gentle. It, it's gracious. He extends His peace to them in order to lead them to a full assurance of faith. Just a couple notes here about the peace. Uh, the Lord offers peace to us even though He knows our past. You know what? He knew the disciples' past, didn't He? He knew how little faith they had. How many times did Jesus say, Oh, you of little faith, to His disciples? He knew how they slept in the garden when they should have been praying how they all fled and disappeared when Jesus was arrested. Uh, he knew how they doubted the testimony of the women. And of course, He had chosen them fully knowing their past. They were all sinners, and they had all sinned repeatedly, even at the Lord, after the Lord had called them to Himself. Yet here He comes and offers them peace. The Lord knows all about our past as well. And yet He extend to us, extends to us His peace and His forgiveness. I want you to listen to David as he extols God's mercy. This is in Psalm 145. He says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all, and His mercies are over all of His works. The Lord sustains all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The Lord is righteous in all His ways and kind in all of His deeds. The Lord is near to all who call upon Him and all who call upon Him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of the desires of those who fear Him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. That's our God that David's writing about. Well, number two, the Lord offers peace to us even though He knows our present doubts and our, and our current fears. The risen Lord Jesus not only could pass through closed doors and vanish again at will. I wonder if we're going to have that power when we get to heaven, Corey. Y'all can talk about that when you do Randy Alcorn, whether that's going to be for us or not. But he could also read the disciples' thoughts. He knew that they were troubled and, and doubting. But in spite of this, he, he gently extends his peace to them to lead them to faith. Now, you may have a terrible past, even after you professed faith in Christ. You may be struggling right now with doubts and fears despite the fact that He showers His mercies on you daily. Jesus knows your every thought, and yet He extends His peace, His forgiveness to you. In Hebrews chapter 4, right after telling us that all things are open and laid bare before the Lord's eyes. In other words, He sees everything. Right after He says that, He tells us, 
draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Let the abundance of God's grace lead your doubting heart to repentance and to a full assurance of faith. We'll be here to lead us to an assurance of faith. The risen Lord gives us solid evidence to rest upon. And as I said, this is evidence that he gave for the, the, for the disciples, the apostles, and those gathered there. But, I mean, it, it man, it should mean so much to us as, where, as well. The Lord catered to their weakness and doubts by showing them his hands and feet. Look, it's me. Check it out. He invited them to touch him and to verify that he was not a ghost since he had flesh and bones. Then as further proof that he was bodily risen from the dead, he took a piece of broiled fish and ate it in their presence. Jesus helped their shaky faith here by giving them solid evidence that he is who he claimed to be. Now, if we're struggling with doubts and fears, we need a clearer view of who Jesus really is. Number one, Jesus' wounds, they should lead us to believe in His death on our behalf. Now, Jesus' body is the only uh, body that will be in heaven with scars on it. If you are scarred or, or disfigured, uh, your resurrection body is going to be recognizable as you, but the imperfections are going to be removed. Tim, I bet you get that finger back. I mean, Jack. He knows what I'm talking about. But when we think about Jesus, He is still going to be the Lamb standing as if slain. When He comes again, Israel will look on Him whom they have pierced. It will still be there. And they will mourn. Jesus' perpetual scars on His hands and His feet and His, his side assure us that He who died is the same who is raised from the dead for our salvation. It's not somebody else. You recognize these scars, you know who I am. His wounds assure us of His great love, that He, the eternal Son of God, would endure such abuse for us. His wounds also remind us of the fact that without the shedding of blood, what? There is no remission of sin. He bore our sins in His body on the cross. His wounds assure us that He is our high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses since He too was tempted in every way just as we are yet without sin. Well, number two here, Jesus' risen body, that should assure us to believe in His resurrection from the dead. His resurrection body was different than our mortal bodies, and it could pass through walls and appear and disappear again, yet it was still a body. He wasn't a ghost. He wasn't a spirit. And Jesus took great pains here to prove to the disciples that He was raised bodily. They could see Him. They could touch Him. They could see His scars. He actually ate in front of them. Some have thought that Jesus' words, flesh and bones, are significant. He says, here, see, my flesh and bones, you know, ghosts don't have that. They think that's significant because in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50, Paul says that flesh and blood cannot enter God's kingdom. So they have argued that Jesus' resurrection body didn't have any blood. But to do that is to misunderstand Paul's words and to attach a wrong significance to Jesus' words here. Paul simply meant that uh, our present mortal bodies uh, are not fit to be in heaven. 
Flesh and blood is a way of, of talking about our mortality. What does Paul say just a few verses later? The mortal must put on immortality. We are not fit for heaven. Okay? But we will be changed. Jesus here says flesh and bones because that's what's verifiable. That's what's visible. That's what's tangible. They could touch him and go, oh yeah, you got flesh and bones. Okay. The point is he was bodily raised. And when he returns, he will raise up all who have died in him and give us new resurrection bodies. How many would like your new resurrection body today? Yeah. I wouldn't talk about dying. I mean actually getting the body. The point is... Um, all the evidence that Jesus gave His disciples that He was bodily raised from the dead should, should assure us to fully believe in Him. And just one more quick little point here. To lead us to an assurance of faith, the risen Lord instructs us out of His Word. I want you to know the confidence and, and note the confidence that Jesus puts here in the written Word. Just as He did with those men on the road to Emmaus. Remember, where did He take them? To, 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 to explain the crucifixion and to point to the Messiah, to point to us that where did he take them? To all they had, the Old Testament. And he says, in, all, in, in Moses and the prophets is what he calls it. And that's, that's kind of a way that the, the Old Testament is usually referred to in Scripture. Moses, that's the law, and the prophets. The law and the prophets, that's kind of a conglomeration. He does the same thing here, except he adds in Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. That's, the Psalms represent what we call the writings. That's the third major portion of the Old Testament. What he's doing here is saying, listen, everything in the Old Testament points to me. Now, if you're struggling with doubts, read your Bible and ask the Lord to open up your mind to understand it, especially to see how the Old Testament predicted the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Now, it really is true that Jesus Christ died for our sins, that He was raised bodily from the dead, and that He offers forgiveness and eternal life to every sinner as a free, unmerited gift. And it really is important for you to believe the testimony that He gave to the disciples. It should flood your soul with peace, knowing that He has forgiven your sins and accepted you because of Christ's righteousness, not because of any righteousness of your own. It'll give you hope, joy, even in the most difficult trials, knowing that His resurrection guarantees your resurrection when He returns. It'll make you steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain with the Lord. Even though at times you will be tempted to doubt it, thinking, this is simply too good to be true. That Christ died for my sins and I don't have to do anything except believe. The Lord wants you to know hmm, it is true. Believe God's word about Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, and rejoice. And let's pray. Father, thank you again just for the gift of Jesus and all that he did in accomplishing your will. Coming to earth as a babe, a helpless babe, Father. And the um, Lord uh, just died on the cross for our sins and then was raised uh, three days later and then ascended into glory and is now seated at the right hand of God. We thank you for all of his obedience and Lord, what it means for us 
that by his death we can be saved, Father. And it's all in just believing. Uh, Father, help us to do that. Give us believing hearts and minds and eyes this morning uh, to see Jesus for who he really is. Draw us to him. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe you're out there this morning and you recognize that you have never trusted, you've never believed. You remember that's all Abraham did. He believed God and God reckoned, uh, hit, reckoned it to him as righteousness. Have you ever trusted wholly in Jesus? Absolutely in Jesus. And, and, and you have to divest yourself of yourself. <laughs> you can't come to God with your hands open and say, hey, I'm bringing this. No. There's only one thing that satisfies God. And that's Jesus' death on the cross. You have to trust that for your eternal life. Maybe you've never done that. If you haven't, I encourage you to do it. Ask God to forgive your sins, to be merciful to you, and trust in Jesus' completed work <clears throat> Excuse me, on the cross. He'll make you a child of His. If you're a believer, I hope that you've just been encouraged this morning with more evidence that Jesus particularly gave to His disciples to say, Hey, this is me. I am risen from the dead. And that He is alive today, interceding for us. Uh, he's taking care of us. He's involved in our lives more than we could possibly ever imagine. I hope it brings you joy to know that He's on your side if you belong to Him. And I hope you're living a life that is worthy of the calling with which you've been called. You get with God about that. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, CrawfordvilleFBC.com.